Today's program is proudly brought to you by Whole Foods Market. Visit WholeFoodsMarket.com or download the Whole Foods Market app to learn more and find the store nearest to you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. All right, you're listening to Heritage Radio Network. This is Eat Your Words, and I'm your host, Kathy Irway. So, okay, this is, you know, it's only March right now, and this has been a pretty eventful year. Today is the second time I've sat in the station the day after a massive protest march took place in my city. Uh, This time it was the March for Our Lives yesterday, um, which took place across the country. And, um, but you know, this week there's been many developments, just like any other week. Um... A lot has happened. So, you know, everything from um, the organic certification recently was officially stripped of its animal welfare clause. Um, And then there's um, farmers in the Midwest who are now bracing for tariffs on soybeans, which um, the Chinese government has vowed in retaliation to some steel tariffs that our government has vowed. And, uh, you know, a lot of things continue to happen in the world of food and the greater world of economics. Although the difference between this week and other weeks is that I happen to be reading a book right now that sort of helped put everything into more clear focus for me. And, you know, while still frustrating, many of these developments were, I I seem to, reading this book seemed to sort of ease the sense of bewilderment that I might feel otherwise. And so for that reason, I think it's a wonderful book for anyone to get their hands on to anyone who might be an activist or looking to change the way things are. So this book is called A Foodie's Guide to Capitalism, Understanding the Political Economy of What We Eat. It is written by Eric holt Jimenez, PhD, who's on the line right now. Hi, Eric. Hello, Kathy. How are you? Thank you so much. I'm good. I'm good. Uh, How are you doing? Doing well, thank you. Great. So, Eric, you are an activist. Um, you are the executive director of Food First. It's an institute for food and development policy. And um, you also um, worked as an agro- agroecologist with farmers' movements in Central America and Mexico for 20 years. And you're also the author and editor of First Food Books, books like Land Justice, Reimagining food, Land, Food, and the Commons in the United States, and Food Movements Unite, Strategies to Transform Our Food Systems. And another one, Food Rebellions, Crisis and Hunger for Justice. And Campesino, Voices from Latin America's Farmer-to-Farmer Movement for Sustainable Agriculture. And you write and contribute to many magazines and blogs. And um, you're basically working around the clock, working for food justice. So uh, we're very, very proud to have you on the station today. Well, thanks for that introduction. Yeah, thanks. Um, I'm I'm very uh, proud to work in an organization like Food First. Mm-hmm. Now, Food First was started over 40 years ago by Francis Molapay, um, who wrote Diet, Diet for, for a Small Planet mm-hmm. and then has gone on to write many other books. But uh, we're a people's think tank. Mm-hmm. We try to 
our, our, our mission is to end the injustices that cause hunger. Mm-hmm. And so right there you can see that we have a different take on hunger. We don't believe it's due to scarcity. We believe it's due to injustice. Right. And, and maybe, you know, central also to the theme in this book is that you, you guys work really cross, uh, across many different organizations um, to, to try to strategize together. Um, one yeah, example. We, we try to do two things. On, mm-hmm. on one hand, we try to generate information and analysis, you know, about hunger, about the food system, um, and uh, what are the, you know, the false solutions to the problem, what are much more promising solutions. And then we also try to amplify the voices of the men and women uh, on the front lines, mm-hmm. uh, and the children, actually, on the front lines mm-hmm. of changing the food system, of addressing these injustices. Um, and it turns out that there's, there's a tremendous amount of hope mm-hmm. coming from, from these quarters for change. That's promising. Um you know, what, what also is prompted, I, I love how you sort of uh, write this book to anyone who maybe calls themselves a foodie, right? It's called A Foodie's Guide to Capitalism. Um, it, it, is a, it seems like a very um, welcoming gesture, but, um, you know, it's also a little bit, you know, critical. When I was reading the, the beginning, uh, the introduction, um, you talk about how the food movement and various, you know, food activists can have a bit of a siloed approach and uh they seem sometimes single focused uh, you know they focus single uh, whatever so they focus singularly on something like i don't know food waste or urban agriculture or uh gmo or something you know obviously something that you can have sort of tangible results and prove something and work towards um but this focus, you write, often eclipses work to build long-term political movements that could, ag- that could address the underlying root causes of these problems. And, uh, you know, it's, it's true that there's this moment, I think, in every, uh, you know, discussion into how do I solve something that everyone sort of wants to throw up their hands and say, well, there's that larger system working against us, and ah, <laughs> we have to, like, undo so much to make it uh, some, some progress here. So it's a very right. humbling. Reading. I mean, I, I think people, you know, put their heads down and work very hard solving the problems which are most pressing for them, mm-hmm. or the problems which they think they can. Okay, I can't solve uh, maybe world hunger, but you know, maybe I can get a garden put in right. in my neighborhood, a collective garden. And you know, this is fantastic work, and it's happening um, all over the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think if we take a step back and look at this very you know, popular grassroots response to the failures and the injustices of the global food system. Um, if we look at this systemically, I think um, we begin to see things sort of, we turn things on their head. And what I mean by that is mm-hmm. it's very easy to sort of look at the food system or look at the world economic and political system and just throw up your hands, get very depressed. Mm-hmm. This is terrible. We're going in the wrong direction, you know, with climate change and hunger and, and so many things. Um, on the other hand, when we begin to look at the role of the food system within society and within um, the larger economic system, which is capitalism, um, we begin to see the tremendous power of the food system. 
and how the food system is really a, a pivotal sector in order to change the larger global hmm. system of capitalism. Um, we have a capitalist food system, and you know most of us are trained in capitalism. Not even economic, yeah. not even a, a course in economics will train you to understand capitalism. That helps you with markets. Yeah. Doesn't help you with capitalism. The capitalism, the system, has been around for you know several hundred years, and some of us have been studying it a long time. So there's a lot we know about it. So if we want to change the food system, we have to first recognize well it's a capitalist food system, so it's going to act the way capitalism acts. Right. So, if you really want to change the food system, we have to understand capitalism. But then, I think the good news is, oh, it turns out that the food system's integral to capitalism. So, if we change the food system, mm. really change it structurally, then we're going to affect the whole system. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because food is, you know, as you write, we have to understand food is a commodity in today's system. Um, and unless we wrap our heads around that, it, it's not going to to change, you know, even though it is a, a need, everybody needs food to some extent, um, you know, it is not something that is seen as, uh, a, let's say, a public utility um, or something that is necessarily, you know, given in, fair, in a fair and equitable way distributed throughout um, society. So... Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And I think this helps to explain why we have um, you know, close to a third of the world's population is hungry and malnourished. And yet, we produce more than one and a half times enough food for every man, woman, and child on the planet. We overproduce food. Right. And we've been overproducing food for at least a half century now. And, and, you've read and that's yet, the a- more we mm-hmm. produce, the more people go hungry. Because they can't afford to buy the food. The people that go hungry are people who are poor. Yeah. And so they can't afford to buy the commodity of food that is being produced. That's something so I find... the problem yeah. is the commodity. Mm-hmm. That's one of the things that is really, really tough to, to get, you know, around the, the just the common sense logic of it. But um, you write that, you know, capitalism does encourage overproduction um, in this way. So that is a, a sort of... You, you write also that, you know, capitalist agriculture was something of a of an oxymoron from, from the very beginning, right? Right, right. Because agriculture... Um, yeah. Well, I think that um, first, you know, one has to understand, and it's, that's what I'd go into in my book, is, is sort mm-hmm. of bringing out just very elemental um, rules of capitalism, how it works the way it does. And I use what's called political economy, which is basically the study of who has what, who gets what, who does what, and where they do, you know, who gets what and where they do with it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you, so you follow the flow of value. How is value created? Mm-hmm. And then who gets it? Mm-hmm. Where does it go? Um, and it turns out that the food system is, you know, a $6 trillion a year uh, enterprise. It's incredibly valuable. Mm-hmm. Um, but very little of that value accrues to farmers. Right. Um, farmers used to get, you know, 40, 40% or more of the value of the food dollar. Now they're getting, you know, 15% or so, 15, 18%. And farmers in, in uh, third world countries get even less. So um, the, the problem isn't that, um, that, the, that we don't have the means 
to end hunger. And uh, certainly we don't have, it's not that we don't have the means to end hunger sustainably. It's just the distribution, the problem of distribution of power and wealth within the food webs, within the food value chain. And you can see how this, um, this sort of power dynamics extends into almost everything that we talk about in politics today, from you know, immigration reform um, and to you know, the plate of undocumented immigrants who perform most of our farm labor you know, and, and have little bargaining rights or you know, worker rights. So understanding that power dynamic, um, you tr- which you trace throughout this book, is, is, I think, really pivotal to understanding a lot that's going on today. Um, well, I'm glad you bring up the uh, subject of uh, immigrants and mm-hmm. and uh, farmers and food workers, because of course in the United States our food system would crash tomorrow <laughs> without that labor. And um, if you go back in history, you can go back hundreds of years. But if you go back to World War II, um, the United States would not have been able to fight the Second World War had it not been for Mexican mm-hmm. farm worker labor um, right. who stepped in when all the farm boys went to war. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet, because of their legal uh, status, <laughs> lack of the legal status in the United States, um, these people who basically have been the pillar of the U.S. economy for so long um, are basically discriminated and exploited because they don't have uh, the legal stature. And this has been instituted. This is, this is right. no mistake, because that means that their labor can be devalued. And, right. um, and their lives and their livelihoods can be devalued. It is you know, To raise a worker yeah. mm-hmm. up to a productive age is right. a tremendous social investment. So they come to this country when you know, some, another country, from Mexico or Central America or Latin America or Asia, has already invested in that worker. Mm-hmm. So that is all free right. to the United States. So this sort of gets back to the roots of how our food system was built. Mm-hmm. And I think if we look at the way immigrants are treated, the way indentured servants were treated, the whole institution of slavery, we realize that the system is built on exploitation. So that's why call, all these calls to say, well, let's fix a broken food system, I think are well-meaning, but a bit displaced. Right. Because if you want to fix it, you have to say, well, that means it used to work well at some point. Okay, yeah. I don't think it did work well for an awful lot of people. (laughs) Right. we don't have to fix this system, we've really got to transform it. Completely, yes. Um, You know, I think that that's sort of like the major takeaway from your book is that, you know, I want to talk a lot more about the solutions in the second half of the show, but, um, you know, our food systems as it as it stands, as you write, could and should feed everybody equitably and sustainably while providing dignified living ho- livelihoods and a good quality of life. But to build a good, clean and fair food system, we need to build an alternate alternative to capitalism, a system designed to concentrate massive amounts of wealth and power in fewer and fewer hands, no matter what the cost to the people or the planet. And, um, yeah, I want to hear, I'm curious to hear what your thoughts are on that, but we're going to, we have a quick little commercial interlude we're going to take and we'll be right back chatting more. Today's program is brought to you by Whole Foods Market. 
From papayas and samosas to reishi mushrooms, if it's something that sounds delicious, chances are you'll find the freshest, best version of it at Whole Foods Market. They have more than 400 stores across the country, so if you consider pizza its own food group or just can't imagine when avocado toast wasn't a thing, Whole Foods Market has you covered. Visit WholeFoodsMarket.com to find a store near you. Whole Foods Market. Whatever makes you whole. Hey, thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network. This is Katie, HRN Executive Director, and I'm so excited to share with you our coverage from the Charleston Wine and Food Festival. We are here live today at Charleston Wine and Food. Join us as we talk all things food. Come to Charleston, eat some seafood. Eat all of the seafood. Chicken fried chicken with chorizo steak and salsa verde mashed potatoes. So quintessentially like Southern fare at its finest. And have important conversations. We're also talking about professional women in restaurants and how underrepresented they are. People of color in restaurants and how they're not talked about. We get real with Food Network's Manit Chohan. Balance is BS. Uh, I, I, I was, yeah, I was told that uh, I wasn't going to be bleeped out. And find out about raising sugarcane with Chef Sean Brock. It's like being Indiana Jones or something. You never know what you're going to find. You'll come away inspired by the power of food and the food scene in Charleston. Here's Dr. Jessica B. Harris. Food is constantly in flux. Food is always moving. Food is the only real lingua franca that we have that allows us to connect with other folks. So tune in to Heritage Radio Network on tour at heritageradionetwork.org or wherever you get your podcasts. You can't go wrong. All right, we're back chatting more with Eric Holt Jimenez. He is the executive director of Food First and the author of the latest book, his latest book, A Foodie's Guide to Capitalism. Thanks for joining us again, Eric. Thank you. And uh, just just getting back to um, you know the how and the why of this book, um, you mentioned in your acknowledgments that it took quite a while to write this, and uh, you know you had a steady stream of work, life commitments, and then the U.S. elections, which led to a stream of missed deadlines. So, <laughs> what happened there? Were you a little uh, well, distracted? Well, I mean, that's sort of part of the course in writing books is missing <laughs> deadlines, but. Um, <laughs> You know, things were moving so fast mm-hmm. with the, the elections and then the election of Donald Trump that, um, you know, everybody's focus was kind of on the clown rather than the circus. And um, yeah. uh, it was difficult, you know, to sort of keep my eye on the, on the big picture and, and mm-hmm. uh, continue to... Um, I had to find ways of, of also bringing the book um, into... Uh, you know, contemporary relevance about what's happening in the world today. Donald Trump is not the only um, sort of neo-fascist being elected uh, to public office and, and to presidencies. I mean, one has to see this uh, very much as a reaction to a long period of uh, neoliberalism and um, and the inability thus far of the progressive forces to mount um, a challenge to the contradictions of capital. And so, in a way, it made the book more relevant, but I had to find ways of mm. speaking much more to, mm. um, you know, contemporary issues. Right. Um, how does that make you feel, like, given all these developments of neo-fascism? Uh, does that sort of put a, a, f- a flame underneath your mission, or does it does it change your mission in any way? Um, um, well, I think... Uh, 
you know, I think it, it, it puts a fire inside, uh-huh. is what it does. And, and that actually is a good thing. Yeah. I mean, historically, capitalism has always sort of bounced back and forth between these periods of liberalization and periods of reform. Okay. Where during liberalization, you know, the, the gloves are taken off the market, all the regulations are thrown out the window, free market capitalism, you know, rules. Mm-hmm. And then the, the social and the environmental destruction of those periods uh, produces what's called a counter-movement. And then people begin to rise up because they can't take it anymore. Um, and then there are financial crashes and, and people mm-hmm. begin to suffer and so they begin to organize more. And the last time we saw this was in 1929 with the financial crash. And afterward, Roosevelt introduces the New Deal. And he mm-hmm. starts with agriculture. Mm-hmm. And he starts with the first food program. <laughs> Yeah. Um, you know, and they begin to control production, control yeah. markets, uh, provide jobs, you know, because the alternative, there were two other alternatives. One was communism, and a lot of people thought that was a good idea in this country, and the other was fascism. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, we can see now sort of history beginning to repeat itself. Yeah. The contradictions in the, the uh, uh, you know, Devastating contradictions of voracious, unfettered capitalism, um, you know, destroying the planet and the peoples, and peoples beginning to rise up. And we've had financial crashes, but it hasn't resulted in reforms. Mm-hmm. And I think that the reason is that we still don't have strong enough counter-movements. Hmm. And so, um, progressive counter-movements. And so what's happened is you're getting, you know, neo-fascist, very reactionary uh, movements coming in to try and introduce reforms, which are, you know, destructive, uh, socially destructive, and, and uh, as we can see uh, with a, a lot of the reforms that are the uh, presidential orders that, that Trump has implemented, mm-hmm. um, you know, economically, environmentally destructive. Yeah. So I think that the, the challenge really is to build these uh, counter-movements. And if we look in general, you know, you see the women's movement, um, see the climate justice movement and, and large parts of the food movement. And now we have the youth movement, which is just taking off. Um, and we saw whom we saw in the streets yesterday. Right. Um, and so what the, the challenge now is to find convergence in all of this diversity and to really politicize these movements. And what I mean by that is let's take a good look at capitalism and say we don't want this. We want to change this. Mm-hmm. And these are the rules, and these are the institutions, and these are the politics. So on, on one hand, I think it's, it's a very um, exciting moment to be in the food movement because, as I mentioned earlier, food is so pivotal. Our food system is so pivotal to everything else. Hmm. And so not only do we have to sort of converge within the food movement, and there are plenty of divisions right. within our movement, um, but we have to converge with other progressive movements. Um, right. And... You know, the time is now, and there's, the time was 10 years ago, and it's still um, very pressing right now. Right. Um, you know, um, in the introduction, or the foreword to this book, Marion Nessel writes that capitalism is seen as something of a taboo. It's like sort of like the C word. Nobody really wants to talk about it much in the food system, or in the food world, or the food movement, <laughs> or all of them. But, um, you know, they're... There is a sort of, um, I guess, a distance between understanding this model. It's almost sort of like accepted, like air. But um, but you're saying we really need to understand this and change it. So I think that 
you know, this book really, really shows that. And actually, as you're mentioning how, you know, fragmented the food, food movement is today, um, I think a vivid example of that, which you bring up is, say, for example, there's um, social justice activists who are looking to put more fresh food in uh, lower income neighborhoods, like um, giving, you know, fresh foods that are affordable and accessible to, to poor neighborhoods, like food deserts. And then take that mission and um, sort of versus the mission of farm worker alliances fighting for fair and equitable wages, producing fruits and vegetables in other countries. And you could see how that might um, come head to head there with some problems. And it's no, all I think there are a lot of contradictions, but I think we have to realize that these is the structures which put mm-hmm. us in contradiction exactly. with each other. Exactly. Um, not the intentions or anything. Not necessarily, mm-hmm. um, you know, the people. I mean, and, I, and one of the nice things about food is if you can sit down at a table and talk <laughs> um, and share a good meal, uh, you begin to uh, work through these things. Yeah. I think it's very important for, or I've learned while at Food First, um, that um, addressing these divisions head on is, is essential. Otherwise, mm-hmm. we can't move forward. And I think we know what they are, you know sexism and racism and classism and addressing these things within our movement, within our organizations, and within ourselves um, is not extra work. It Mm -hmm. is the work. Because if we don't do this, we're not going to be able to converge powerfully, and that is what we have to do. Right. Right. And I I would add to that, I think, so where do we find leadership? And I think the leadership is coming from the leadership that we can count on is coming from those who are most negatively mm-hmm. impacted. Yeah. So women and people of color, um, immigrants, um, these are young people. These are the people who have the greatest stake in changing uh, the system and who provide some of the greatest insights. And these are the people for whom losing hope is not an option. Mm-hmm. Um, and that means more privileged people like myself who mm-hmm. sometimes get overwhelmed by all these you know, terrible things that I study and analyze, um, they don't allow me to lose hope. Yeah. And, um, and if we uh, follow that kind of leadership, because hope, to, hope is different than optimism. Optimism means you're pretty sure you're going to get a desired result. Hope is you believe in something mm-hmm. and you work and you struggle make it happen, uh, and you hope that it's going to turn out, because we don't know how all this is going to turn out. That's the truth. Anybody who says that you, I think, is kidding themselves and kidding us, <laughs> this is a big challenge and a big gamble, and we're not sure what's going to happen. We know what's going to happen if things continue as they are. Um, we're not sure we're going to be able to change things, but we have to try. Mm-hmm. And part of that is is amplifying and listening to the voices of those who are most infected. And uh, that's a really great point that you bring up. Um, It looks like that's about all the time we have for today, unfortunately. But is there any... Oh, my goodness. I know. (laughs) What I wanted to ask, like, what what would be, like, the final, like, most important message you'd like to share with folks as in terms of going forward, moving forward in solutions? Moving forward, um, I would say... Allow yourself for those for whom giving up hope is not an option. Mm. And uh, I would also like to put a shout-out for Food First, where people's think tank, we depend 
on the contributions of, uh, of membership and of people who read our, our materials. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't get any money from the government. We get very little grant money. Um, and, but that allows us to be independent and basically to go to the root, to mm-hmm. be radical. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for all the work that you do. And to that, to that end, A Foodie's Guide to Capitalism is, is you know, published by Food First. So when people buy a book, will, will that be sort of helping, helping your cause out here at Food First? It will. Wonderful. It will. You can go to foodfirst.org mm-hmm. um, and find that book and many others. Um, we've co-published this with Monthly Review, so you can also go to Monthly Review. But uh, in terms of the food movement, I'd, I'd really like to uh, invite people to visit our website and, and read our material. Excellent. So I hope you guys check out foodfirst.org. And thank you so much, Eric, for joining us today. Thank you, Kathy, for having me. It's been a pleasure. Awesome. All right. Well, thanks, everyone at Heritage. We'll see you next week on Eat Your Words. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. That I ain't never, 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 never had no loving like this before.